Coming up on Stu Does America, the winter storm that left Texas frozen in its tracks proved one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt. Holy crap, do we need electricity? It's vital and we need to have it. I'll speak with Robert Bryce. He's an author about the situation in Texas and what it says about the nation. What we can do about it? And residents in Texas are learning that some of their electric bills may have skyrocketed a little bit beyond belief. We'll take a look at what's true and what is media hyperbole. Storm here in Texas may have knocked us for a loop the last couple of days, but the show is back and better than ever. Don't forget to watch it free on podcast, on YouTube, and more. Just go to uh, studosamerica.com. You do the whole thing where you like and you review all the things. It helps us spread the message of this show. Please do so. Or watch the show and all the others on our network with a subscription to Blaze TV. Just head to blazetv.com slash stew. Enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like the stupid show and you'll save 30 bucks off your price. We all know the mainstream media has failed big time when it came to honestly and objectively covering Andrew Cuomo's New York COVID disaster. It's almost like they were completely asleep or something. Luckily, I'm here to wake their asses up. Let's do the Cuomo Awakening. Stu does America. You know, sometimes things just change overnight. You know, it can come from, really go from terrible, absolutely horrific, to fantastic in just a few hours. I mean, just a few days ago, this is what Texas looked like. Oh my gosh, look at that. A snowy disaster. Frigid conditions, power out everywhere. It was like a combination of New York and California all at once. And then, just a few hours later, ah, beautiful. All the snow is melted, the power is on, and it's 74 freaking degrees. Now, I never wanna leave the state of Texas ever again. It's kind of the same thing going on in reverse with Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo has been nursing this untouchable reputation since people in his state started keeling over from the coronavirus back in March. And despite my nearly insane ramblings on the topic, people continued to think he had done a good job. The truth, of course, is that Andrew Cuomo has overseen the single worst response to the coronavirus of any public official in the world. And finally, the tide seems to be turning against him. Let's look at the uh, organization probably most responsible for the false hero narrative of America's dumbest gangster, the organization that also just happens to employ Andrew Cuomo's brother, CNN. Quoting their piece, gently titled, Cuomo's National Star, threatened by increased scrutiny over handling of nursing home deaths, they write, quote, his data-heavy daily news briefings became appointment television for millions of Americans searching for a steady hand and a dose of empathy to counteract then-President Donald Trump's mixture of erratic, dangerous denialism. This, in large part, is how the media is trying to thread the needle on Cuomo. They're essentially saying, sure, you know, Cuomo was a lot worse than we told you he was, but at the time, we were comparing him to Trump, who we hate even more. Every one of these pieces has their little disclaimers to justify their previous slobbering ass-kissing. The upheaval follows months of simmering anger toward among Cuomo critics who, while acknowledging the real public benefits of his early hyper-engaged communication tactics, believe the governor sought to parlay his new popularity into a shield against legitimate questions over his actions. 
This is why Cuomo was popular during the worst of the pandemic, because he acted calm and certain about what was coming. And there's something to that. You don't want to go into a doctor with a fever and have them tell you, oh, geez, you know, I, I, I knew this guy once who had a fever. Turned out he had lung cancer. Oh, have you, do you have a will yet? Is that have you done that? Make sure to take that step. Calmness can be comforting in a lot of serious situations. But let's say, you know, you've been a 40 year, three pack a day smoker and your scan, you know, actually says you have lung cancer. Well, calmness and certainty that everything is going to be just fine is not helpful. That is what Andrew Cuomo was doing in the darkest days of the pandemic. Remember all the criticism of Donald Trump when he compared COVID to the flu? Well, Cuomo calmed the nerves and told New Yorkers with certainty the very same thing. We have more people in this country dying from the flu than we have dying from coronavirus. Mm. And he wanted to make sure that you knew it wasn't as serious as something crazy like Ebola. This is not Ebola. This is not SARS. This is not some science fiction movie come to life. Uh, you know, the hysteria here is way uh, out of line with the actuality and the facts. It's just hysteria, guys. It's true that COVID-19, of course, is not Ebola virus. In fact, COVID-19 would go on to kill more people in New York in just the first two weeks of April than Ebola has worldwide in all of human history. Cuomo's approval rating skyrocketed into the 70s during this crisis, and the fall has really only become recently as his scandals have been revealed, or I should probably say since his scandals have started to be covered by the media. Latest Siena poll shows Cuomo gets positive grades for communicating with New Yorkers, 67 to 33 percent favorable and providing accurate information, 61 to 36 percent. He gets mixed grades for the managing of the vaccine rollout. Mixed, geez, 40 people are, are fleeing the state to get vaccines from other states. Uh, it's about split there and implementing the right plans for reopening New York. However, voters give Cuomo a negative grade, 39 to 55 percent on making public all data about COVID deaths of nursing home patients, according to the new Siena poll of New York State voters. To show you how deeply affected the Cuomo-praising mental disorder runs in New York, think about this for a second. The Cuomo administration has admitted, finally, that they haven't made the data about nursing homes public. Even they say they didn't do a good job on that. Yet still, 39% of New Yorkers approve of his handling of making data about nursing homes public. By the way, a new poll today shows Cuomo's approval rating has dropped from the 70s last year uh, to about 57% now, down just six points in the last month alone. That is from Morning Consult, down to just 57%. While scientific consensus, of course, points to the fact that this is still 57% too high. At least it's going in the right direction. That's because media is finally catching up. They're plainly telling people that what is happening all of a sudden. For example, the New York Times wrote a story about this supposedly science-based governor and how he hasn't been listening to, you know, scientists. But Cuomo had an answer for that. Quote, this week, one of Cuomo's top aides tried to rebut a New York Times story about his hostility to health experts by telling legislators that the governor speaks on a regular basis to prominent epidemiologist named Michael Osterholm, who she described as one of his chief advisors. 
On Thursday, Osterholm himself told PBS that although he has reviewed data for the state government, he has only spoken to Cuomo for one five-minute conversation in his entire life. This passage is from Slate, not exactly known for its conservative street cred, and its title is delicious. Why do Democrats pretend Andrew Cuomo did a good job with COVID? Great freaking question. They note that the nursing home issue was not arbitrary. Quote, it does not look like the discrepancy could have resulted from innocent semantic misunderstandings. The AARP Public Policy Institute Nursing Homes COVID-19 dashboard noted to Slate that, quote, the CDC guidance for the data we use in our dashboard specifically states that resident deaths are supposed to be counted regardless of the place of death, which, of course, is what Cuomo was doing. He's fudging those numbers. While the managing editor of the COVID tracking project said its staff is not currently aware of any other U.S. state or territory that reports deaths in the way that New York did, New York did for most of the pandemic. And he's uniquely awful. That's why the cup exists. Andrew Cuomo is awful.com. Cuomo has been let off the hook for so much, for so long, that reading stuff like this must be shocking to everyone around him. Quote, to many voters, celebrating the idea of the competent blue state governor is more important than reckoning with the reality of a serially underachieving chief executive playing three-card Monty with dead bodies. At this point, Andrew Cuomo could probably shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. It's not just Slate saying this. Slate, by the way, it's not just Slate. Newsweek has a piece entitled, It's Time, Impeach Andrew Cuomo. It's written by Ron Kim, a Democrat from New York, who told the truth about a Cuomo aide who admitted on a private call that they intentionally lied about the pandemic to avoid nasty Trump tweets. That prompted a call from Cuomo himself, quote, on a private phone call, the governor berated me, threatened my career and demanded that I issue a fabricated statement. He wanted me to deny what I heard on the call. Are you an honorable man? He yelled. Who do you think you are? This, too, was an attempt to rope me into his scheme. Those of us who have worked with Cuomo are familiar with his tendencies. There is a long pattern of abusive tactics that the governor deploys when the public gets too close to learning the truth. Cast the net far and wide, compromise as many unwitting accomplices, threaten retribution, then berate you for having the temerity to stand up. I call this Cuomo's predatory inclusion syndrome, and I won't be party to it. Again, this is from a Democrat, a New York Democrat. The New Yorker, who, by the way, also not freaking conservative, the New Yorker had more detail on the conversation. Quote, the governor was on the phone fuming. I will destroy you, Cuomo screamed, according to notes Kim wrote down after the call, which he shared with me. The governor was so loud that Kim's wife and daughters grew upset and Kim stepped out of the bathroom. You haven't seen my wrath, Cuomo told him. I will go out tomorrow and start telling the world how bad an of this. Such this is like the worst threat ever. I will tell the world how bad of an assembly member you are and you will be finished. Oh, don't let anyone say that about you. That's brutal. How about the week? They are another left wing publication. W.E.E.K., not W.E.A.K., by the way. They wrote a piece called Resign Andrew Cuomo. 
and they have the perfect way to end this particular chapter of the Cuomo awakening. Quote, in a sense, Cuomo's book has the correct title, American Crisis. It's just the crisis he's talking about is himself. I'm happy to welcome back to the program Robert Bryce. He is the author of A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations, and the executive producer of the documentary Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Also, be sure to check out his uh, podcast, Power Hungry. Robert, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me back, Stu. I've never been invited back anywhere. I don't know why. It's the first time. <laughs> wow, that says something about you. We'll discuss that later. Uh, <laughs> or, your, or your low standards. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, one of the two. Uh, uh, well, I mean, we kind of shared a little bit of a, of a crazy experience over the past week. You're in Texas as well. Uh, we had a pipe burst. Half of our house is underwater. Um, you lost power. I mean, how did everything go for you over the past week, first of all? Well, look, I, I don't want to complain. Um, we lost power for 45 hours um, and it was very cold, but we still had water um, and we had a natural gas connection, which I think is key. And one of the points that I think is coming out of this that it illustrates the importance of natural gas. I mean, we had a big stack of firewood. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying we, we did great. I, you know, I didn't, don't wasn't happy about losing power. We were uncomfortable, but uh yeah, we, we did better than a lot of people. A lot of my friends lost power for longer. Some of them are, are even still without water. So, um, I mean, it's been really, really hard on a lot of people here in Austin. Yeah, it's really devastating uh, for a lot of people all over the state. Um, so let me go to the cause of this first. Sure. You hear from a lot of the mainstream media and the left that the reason this all happened is because Texas has its own electricity uh, grid. They wanted to be independent. They couldn't be helped by anybody. That's the cause of it. From the right, you hear basically the cause of this was windmills they, that froze. There, is there truth in either one of these, both, and how much of that was the real uh, culprit here? Well, first about this idea that, oh, if only Texas were connected to other grids, everything would have been fine. It's just not true. Um, the fact that Texas has an island grid, well, there are island grids all over the world. I was in, in the, in the film, uh, we went to Iceland. It's an island. They're mm -hmm. doing fine. <laughs> it's <laughs> there cold are a there. lot of islands. <laughs> we're not hearing about blackouts in Hawaii. There are a lot of places that have an island grid and they've been managing just fine. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's a canard here that doesn't, doesn't matter. And further, even if we were interconnected, say with Oklahoma, well, they were in a power crisis as well. It wasn't as though we could go over and borrow a cup of sugar from them. They, they were tapped out too. Um, as far as the, the, what's the, why did this happen? The very short answer is grid mismanagement that the, the grid was not the rules that set up the grid in Texas were not designed to assure reliability. It was an energy, the structure of the market was an energy only market. There were no capacity payments being made. And so when it came to crunch time, the, the entire system was set up effectively <clears throat> to price uh, uh, electricity for crisis periods. So rather than assure cheap, abundant, reliable energy at every hour, it was designed to uh, uh, reward generators during times when the uh, electricity was so scarce that they would pay them $9,000 a megawatt hour. So the, 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 the short answer is it's a badly designed market. Uh, there, there was too much concentration on, in, on uh, variable renewables and not enough spending on resilience.
So there is something to the renewable claim. There's also been talk about how some of the natural gas uh, equipment froze over. I mean, look, part of this is it's Texas and we don't normally have minus two degree temperatures. So whenever that's going to happen, there's going to be issues associated with it. Um, but was was it was natural gas a big issue here and a problem? Was it just solely the renewables? How do we have a split or an understanding on how how much uh, each was at fault here? Well, let me work backward from what I think is what worked. And in my view, I've been adamantly pro-nuclear for a long time. Mm -hmm. In my view, anti-carbon dioxide and anti-nuclear, you're pro-blackout. Well, I am especially now Mm -hmm. anti-blackout. You know, blackouts, people die. The nuclear generation plants in Texas at Comanche Peak and South Texas Project performed far better than any other form of generation in in Texas. At the minimum, at their minimum, they were producing at 73% of capacity. By comparison, wind's output at minimum fell as low as 2%. Natural gas, hydro was 18. Natural gas's lowest output was 53% and coal was 56. So these are important numbers because the way the market was designed, it was designed to facilitate a lot of wind and solar. And I think that the bottom line here is that the market was set up to facilitate all this investment in wind and solar, and that's what happened. Uh, We had billions, tens of billions of dollars spent building renewables like solar and wind, and then when they were needed, they couldn't deliver. And the the spin, and there's been an avalanche of it in the wake of this blackout, was, oh, well, don't blame wind. They performed better than expected. Well, the expectation was so low. If you, you know, it's like, (laughs) oh, well, it was, it's a tall dwarf. Well, okay, well, great. But, but the reality is, again, that the focus has been too much on decarbonization and facilitating solar and wind and not nearly enough on resilience and reliability. Um, I think it's been interesting watching. I know a lot of people who uh, I, I know from uh, from my area and all over Texas had this massive issue where the power was out, and it and it really resets your your uh, projection of what life can be. I mean, it is such a dramatic change. I want to show a clip from your documentary, Juice. This is uh, this is right towards the beginning, and it, it, I thought of this as I was watching um, people all across the state surviving in and basically what is not even a civilized society. Watch. We know that there are about 1.2 billion people in the world today who have no access to electricity at all. What's missing in that statistic is that there are a couple of billion more whose access to electricity is inadequate, intermittent. The system doesn't work all the time. The defining inequality in the world today is the disparity between the electricity rich and the electricity poor. That's such an important way of understanding the world right now. And the documentary does a great job at explaining this. But like we saw it here. We this is Texas. This is an energy rich, advanced uh, Western society that went from everything's perfect and, 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 and well and good to basically a giant zilch in two days because the power wouldn't operate. I mean, this is a crucial thing for people and policymakers to understand. You know, Stu, you said it better than I think I could, and I don't say that to many people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
but it's exactly right. And and I've been writing a piece. I, I published a piece in Forbes a week ago, right as as the blackout was starting, pointing out that this idea that we should electrify everything, which is the mantra of essentially all the climate activists in America and the big environmental groups. Oh, we'll just turn all of our transportation, all our industrial load and residential load. We'll electrify all of it and we'll retire the entire natural gas grid. We won't need any hydrocarbons. Now, that, that idea now in particular, it's not only wrong, it's dangerous because if you try that, it, people will die because we saw people die in this event and, and, and because of hypothermia, they froze to death. Mm. But I think the punchline here is, is exactly what you just said, and I'll, I'll put it slightly different than, differently than you did, Stu, which is we ignore the fragility of our electric grid at our peril. It is the most important, uh, uh, the biggest, most important, most complex network in our society, and every other network in our society depends on it. And yet that reliability, that resilience was ignored in, in the pursuit of policy goals that didn't have anything to do with that reliability and resilience. And now Texas has no choice but to but to right the ship and, and to make that resilience and reliability the first priority for electricity provision uh, for pro- electricity providers and for the for the entire state uh, state grid. Yeah, I mean, I think over the last year, we've really been hit with a couple of these things. I mean, I think the pandemic is sort of this similar society of like, or a similar idea that society itself basically like expects general health, right? Like we just kind of expect we're going to be able to go out and have an economy and we're not all going to potentially get a, a pandemic virus. The same thing here is like we just expect the electricity to work. In the documentary, you point out that's definitely not the case in a lot of areas in the world. And it totally upends their society. You talk about in the Forbes story about the, um, our energy security not being taken seriously enough. How do we take it more seriously? And, and what do you mean by that? I mean, how, 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 how bad is it? This is the point that I think of all the things that I made a number of points in that Forbes piece, and I was pleased to get it, you know, see it get some traction. But it, the, the idea of energy security has many meanings now. You know, it used to be about OPEC and oil imports and, mm. and, and about our ability to get gasoline and so on. The most fundamental meaning of it is that we all have enough energy of whatever type during extreme cold periods that we don't freeze to death. That's the, I mean, that's the it when it comes to, to, to energy security. The, the most basic and most important one to each of us is that we don't die for lack of energy. And, and, and that is, leads to this other point that I think is essential, particularly for people in Texas, but it, it's really around the United States. My first book was on Enron. I published it 20 years ago. When Enron failed, the U.S. was using about, <clears throat> excuse me, five trillion cubic feet of gas per year for electricity production. We've more than doubled that now. It's over 11 trillion cubic feet per year. We can't do without gas. This idea that we're going to just retire the entire natural gas network in America, and there are over 40 communities in California that have banned gas. The city of Seattle has banned the use of natural gas in new buildings. <clears throat> San Francisco, a bunch of uh, about a dozen communities in Massachusetts are pushing for natural gas bans. This fuel is not, it's low carbon, it's low cost, it's abundant, even super abundant, it's domestically produced. And the idea that we're, we're going to do without it, it's, again, it's not just wrong, it's dangerous, because this fuel is affordable. And, it, and, and, and it's a class issue as well, which is the other thing that I've given a lot of thought to and writing a lot more about is, you're going to force people to use electricity instead of gas because of your concerns about climate change. And now I'm talking about environmental groups, mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain Institute, Sierra Club, the other groups that are pushing this agenda. What about the, the poor and the middle class? 
you're going to force them to buy electricity instead of gas at four times the money. Well, that's great if you've already got gas and you're an elite and you live on the coast and you don't, you know, you don't need it. But for people who are struggling with energy poverty, this is a real problem. And yet it's not even part of the discussion for a lot of these environmental groups. And I I just think it's wrong. I'm I'm enough of a liberal still, small liberal to think this is just bad policy and not wealth considered. And yet this is the mantra of essentially all the major environmental groups and major environmental activists in America. All right. Well, so let's uh, looking forward. How do we solve this? I mean, you know, I think everybody in Texas has suddenly learned that ERCOT (laughs) exists. Um, I don't think any of us knew this before, like last week. And they're all suggesting names. Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Well, let's take that R out. Yeah. We'll call it ECOT. Yeah, ECOT's yeah. a little bit better. Um, is it is it as simple as reforming that? Is it as simple as reforming the market? You know, we see all these stories about you know, on, at the infrastructure level that there are parts from 80 years ago that are still, you know, key in our electricity grid or electrical grid. What what are the things we need to do to make sure this crap doesn't happen again? Well, I think the first thing would be for uh, Ted Cruz to stop making fun of California's electric grid. That would be a good start. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I think he's learned his lesson on that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't 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 start talking about California just yet. Um <laughs> But yes, there's going to have to be a refocus, a, a, a clearer understanding that we ignore the fragility and the importance of the electric grid at our peril, that this, this grid is the mother network. It's the thing that we depend on for everything else, our GPS, our traffic lights, our water, all of this depends on having cheap, abundant, reliable flows of electricity. So that should be the starting point. I think second, you know, I've had people say, well, if you're going to go to the legislature and suggest a policy, what would you do? I'd say, well, the first thing I'd do, I'd pass a bill that prohibits uh, municipalities from banning the use of natural gas. This is this is bad policy, and they shouldn't be allowed to do it. Um, but I think that also there needs to be a real clear understanding of where the investment is going, and that if we're serious about decarbonization, we should be investing in nuclear. And you know, this is personal to me because I've lived in Austin now for. And been a journalist here for 35 years, something like that. And I've seen this demonization of the South Texas Project. The city of Austin tried to sell the South Texas Project. It's the most valuable asset the city of Austin owns. It was the best investment the city of Austin ever made by far. And yet the idea that, oh, we don't need nuclear and, and, oh, it's too dangerous and the rest of it. No, nuclear was essential during this blackout and that... Um, instead of adding yet more transmission, spending more on CRES lines and other things that cost ratepayers every month, why don't we look again at nuclear in this state and understand that natural gas and nuclear are, are, and this is a point that I've been making for more than a decade, these are the low carbon, relatively low cost, scalable uh, uh, choices for abundant, reliable electricity. And, And those are the things that we have to keep in mind. I think it's certainly a focus on the federal level as well as making for making it easier for for nuclear facilities to start up. I mean, making it even possible for new ones to start up would be a a good step. Last question here for you. Every time we hear an infrastructure, quote unquote, infrastructure plan, uh, it's going to be one point five trillion dollars in there is usually something to modernize the electricity grid. I, generally speaking, don't like spending anything on anything. Um, But is there something to that? I mean, should this come from the federal level? Is there something that that can actually happen at this level? Or is this like the left just throwing money at a problem again? Well, 
this idea that we're going to suddenly make, uh, you know, build a whole new transmission grid across the United States ignores some basic realities. And let's look at what's happening with pipelines. Well, you know the story about Dakota Access or Keystone XL. Mm -hmm. Those projects have been canceled. Those are projects that are pipeline projects, oil and gas, that are underground. Well, now the suggestion is, oh, well, we'll build a bunch of electricity pipelines because that's what high voltage transmission is. We're going to build a whole bunch of electricity pipelines, not just a few thousand miles, tens of thousands of miles. We'll double, triple, quadruple the amount of existing high voltage transmission. We'll spin it across interstates all across the state of the country, and it'll be easy. No, it won't. It'll be incredibly difficult. So this idea that, oh, we'll solve all of our energy problems by building more high voltage transmission just ignores all the land use conflicts that are going to come with that and the problems of just the scale. So do we need infrastructure? Absolutely. Roads, bridges, uh, you know, better, better transit. You know, you've been to LaGuardia Airport later. Mm -hmm. Lately, it's a dump. <laughs> you know, these kinds of things I make I think make sense. But the idea that, oh, if only we spend more money on the electric grid to accommodate more renewable energy, I just think that that's a non-starter. It, it is not the, – the, the Texas blizzard proves, again, too much focus on decarbonization and not enough on resilience and reliability. That's where the infrastructure discussion needs to start. All right, Robert Bryce, he's got electricity, he's got heat, he can do his podcast. It's all happening again. Society, civilization has returned to Texas. I have never been so happy to have a, we got out of bed, it was almost midnight, we jumped, my wife and I jumped out of bed, we started dancing around the house. We were so happy, <laughs> Stu. I just, I, I've spent years writing and thinking about electricity. I've never been so happy to have it in my, in my entire life, and it's, I'm an old man. <laughs> it is amazing how, how real of a crisis it creates when it's not there for you. You depend on it all the time, and the second it's not there, society turns upside down. Uh, Robert Bryce, he's the author of A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations, and the executive producer of the documentary Juice, How Electricity explains the world of course the podcast is power hungry robert thanks so much for coming on the program thanks a million Stu. all right stay warm back in a second thank you i'm doing a little thinking about the sort of woke culture and the way this is progressing and if you're going to find any hope anywhere it's in the idea that the the left is probably going to overreach here Right. They're going to go too far. They're going to go for too much. And then the pendulum will swing back the other way. So we're going to be kind of watching this develop over time with our pendulum watch segment, because I'm hoping that the pendulum eventually is going to kind of swing back the other way. One of the areas where I have the most optimism for this is the odd uh, area of women's and men's sports. You know, I know it doesn't seem like much, but if you happen to be a parent of a daughter, like I have a daughter, my daughter, a daughter likes to play sports, you know, this is a big issue for you because if, uh, you know, if, if, <laughs> if dudes are competing with your daughter, I mean, you know, no offense, but they're probably going to win. I mean, we've seen this all over the country now where guys are just saying they're women and they're going in and they're playing, they're competing against girls and, and winning by a large margin. I mean, if you go and look at even Olympic level athletes that are women in track events, are competitive with high school men, high school boys, uh, you know, for uh, for like a 100 meter dash and 200 meter dash and 110 meter hurdles, all those sorts of things. So it, there's just a, a wide gap there. Everyone on earth knows this to be true, but you're not supposed to say it's true. And everyone on earth knows it's true that a guy competing in women's uh, high school sports is ridiculous. Well, there's an you always going to have conservatives who are saying these types of things, right? It's now kind of expanding. In fact, there's a new group out there pushing um, 
against the Biden administration's uh, executive orders. And it's headed by uh, Tennis Hall of Famer Martina Navratilova. You may uh, remember her. Uh, She was uh, one of the greatest uh, tennis players of all time on the female side. Uh, she is um, calling for a special provision made for elites, uh, made, made for uh, sports after uh, Joe Biden signed an executive order designed to allow equal transgender participation in school sports. In an interview with BBC Radio 4, Navratilova proposed a separate provision from the executive order to ensure a level playing field for elite women's sports. Um, and this is now being it's not just, you know, celebrities and, and people like that. It's parents who are just saying, like, this is crazy. We all understand it's crazy. I think it's one of the first things that we can kind of look for when we look for that pendulum to swing back the other way and say that this woke stuff is ridiculous. I do feel like there's there's winnable ground here for conservatives as we go forth, although it's hard in this environment because everything you say is uh, is under a microscope. Everything you do gets, uh, you know, uh, brings up all these new controversies. And most people aren't. Uh, aren't uh, not well protected enough mentally to be able to handle this sort of thing. You know, I mean, I, we've been doing this for a long time. I can remember when the first quote unquote boycott started for us. This is, you know, 15 years ago. And, you know, to me at this point, none of this stuff makes any difference. I don't care about it. You can boycott us all you want. You can do all that crap. You can say I'm Hitler. I never care. Like there's never a moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I need, I feel the need to respond I mean, if I think it's going to be good content, I'll blabber about it a little bit on the show. But I really don't care what anybody says about us at this point. We've been through these fires over and over and over and over again. Well, it's not true for everybody. Um, Rush Limbaugh, of course, also went through this. He was constantly called out for being uh, this evil racist guy. Um, he, uh, of course, passed away, as we talked about last week. Uh, and most of the obituaries were basically just lists of his worst quotes from media matters. You know, it's like Rush Limbaugh, who said X, Y and Z uh, was also on the radio and he's dead. That was essentially what you got. No reflection on the amazing things the man accomplished, even if you thought he was the worst guy on Earth as far as his politics go. It's hard to deny what he did for the radio industry, what he did for the conservative movement, what he did just as a radio talent. I mean, the guy was. You know, talent on loan from God, as, as much as he kind of said that with the tongue in his cheek, uh, really was a, it's a, an, apt, an apt description. Well, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, um, likely a 2024 competitor for the uh, presidency as well. It seems like everything is trending that way. Um, he decided he wanted to have Rush Limbaugh, um, uh, honor Rush Limbaugh by flying the flags in his state at half staff. He's now getting pushback from his ag, his ag commissioner, who is saying she will not fly that flag at half staff for Rush Limbaugh. Again, like there was a period like we fly, flew the, the flag at half staff for um, um, you know, a bunch of uh, left wing people recently. You know, John Lewis and, and, and many others um, because it just I don't know. It's what you do, I guess. It just when you have a major figure on either side who dies, you don't sit here and micromanage and say, like, I think John Lewis wanted a lot of terrible policies. I think he's, he was a bad congressman. Uh, I think he was terrible as, as a congressman, but he accomplished some things. We kind of all rec- recognize his historical uh, accomplishments, and that's why he gets those honors. And the right doesn't push back against that. You'd think the same thing would apply to Rush. Apparently not. There's a fight going on with that right now. We're just so sensitive about everything all the time. It's a constant battle. Every new little thing that comes up, 
You know, Gina Carano tweets something. Everyone's all upset. Well, now we have another. I don't even know. Disney Plus was involved in the Gina Carano thing. Of course, it relates to the Mandalorian and Star Wars. Now there is a new controversy with the Muppet Show. Yes, the freaking Muppet Show, you know, with Kermit and Fozzie, those known racists. You know how racist Miss Piggy is? I mean, this you should see her offset backstage. She's running her mouth, constant racial slurs, basically a white supremacist, even though she's pink. It's, it's true, and no one's going to tell you that except me. Um, this is now the disclaimer. Look at this disclaimer you get when you launch a new episode of Di- uh, on Disney Plus of The Muppet Show. The, the show ran from 1976 to 1981. It says the pr- uh, it's very small print, so I will, I will read it to you. This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation. God, we don't need any more conversation. Shut up with your conversations and create a more inclusive future together. Disney is committed to creating stories. It's interesting. Inclusive doesn't include conservatives. Uh, Disney is committed to creating stories with inspirational and aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe, blah, blah, blah. To learn more about how stories have impacted... Is anyone clicking on this to learn more about how stories have impacted society? Visit their dumb website. Uh, So this is really where we are now. Now, I watched The Muppet Show back in the day. Maybe that's the cause of my conservatism. I don't remember hardcore conservative uh, vibes being thrown out there. Certainly don't remember uh, hardcore racist vibes in the Muppet show, maybe they existed. I mean, obviously you go back and you watch some of that old material sometimes. Sometimes it comes off as a little strange and, and out of place in today's society. But I mean, do we really need a disclaimer for freaking Muppets? This is the problem. You learn this once, you learn this a thousand times. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. Every thought you have is a KKK dream. Everything is racist. Yes, it's true. Every single thing is racist. New thing is racist today. Want to make sure you understand that. The Jeep Grand Cherokee. Yes, the Jeep Grand Cherokee is racist. Uh, Amazing. For the first time, the Cherokee Nation is asking Jeep to change the name of its Cherokee and Grand Cherokee vehicles. Uh, I'm sure this comes from a place that is well-intended, but it does not honor us by having our name plastered on the side of a car. That's, that comes from Chuck Hoskin Jr. Doesn't sound very Cherokee, but that's the sort of stereotype Jeep is perpetrating. Most Cherokees are named Chuck Hoskin Jr. or something similar. Um, he is the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. He told Car and Driver in a written statement responding to our request for comment on the issue. Now, that's a little bit... When car driver's like, hey, will you respond? Do you want Cherokee on the side of the car? I don't know, maybe he's, I guess not. I I don't know if it's a big deal. Um, He says, the best way to honor us and learn about our sovereign government, our role in this country, our history, culture, and language, and have a meaningful dialogue. God, no more meaningful dialogue. uh, With federally recognized tribes on cultural appropriateness, blah, 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 blah. Look, I don't know. Maybe they'd be happier if it was on a Bugatti or a Ferrari. You know, I mean, it's a Jeep. I mean, it's a fine car, but maybe they wanted something nicer, higher end. I think we should just start naming everything after boring white people. I want a stew. I think it should be the Jeep stew. Just call it the Jeep stew. 
The, then we, and you have the, uh, the Ford Bob and the uh, Chevy Bill. And they just call it a day. I, I, I am never going to be offended. Put my name on all sorts of stuff, especially if it actually goes forward. You know, I, I've got a, a, an old school MG from 1978 that barely ever runs. Don't put it on that car. But if the car continues to roll forward and stop when I press the brake, you can name it the Jeep Stew, and I'm going to be fine with it. Just remember, when you're buying a car, everything is racist. Everything is racist. Every thought you have is a KKK dream. Everything is racist. White supremacist extreme. So as Texas kind of puts the pieces back together here and tries to have a society again, uh, one of the issues that's coming out, and the, and the news loves this right now, a uh, story about this one company, I think it's called Gritty. And basically, it's, it's caused some people to have really, really expensive bills um, uh, for electricity because the price got so high, the spot price for electricity here, um, that you know a lot of people have these variable rate plans. To keep it simple, Gritty basically offers a pretty simple service. You pay 10 bucks a month, and they give you electricity at the price it costs. 99% of the time, you're going to do really well with that, right? You're going to have a low prices because you're going to be paying a low fee. But every once in a while, when it spikes, it can get really bad. Now, this was going to be so bad that Gritty actually sent out an alert ahead of time that said, this is going to be really bad. Switch electricity companies now. Have you ever heard of anything like that? I mean, I've never heard of anything like that. People had $15,000, $20,000 bills. Now, they're all, people are beating up on Gritty like it's their fault. And they got a $9.99 a month profit off these people. They're not making money off of this. Um, it's not their fault. Uh, but there should probably be uh, some level of uh, understanding that if you're going to be paying $20,000 bills, there's probably going to be something where the government steps in here and, and makes this okay for everyone, as they usually do. Um, also want to point out, uh, Bitcoin hit 58000 and change. I can't even believe I'm saying these words. 58000 and change over the weekend. It's down to like fifty three, fifty four thousand right now, so... I mean, basically, it's toast. Uh, every, the whole thing's falling apart. Uh, but what's interesting about it is, you know, Elon Musk put a bunch of money in here uh, into this. And, and, you know, his solar uh, roof and solar panels and all that have been kind of the, uh, the, the star of, of some people's homes down here in Texas as it melted the snow off the roof. Um, but what's interesting is uh, they're kind of like Tesla's just basically a Bitcoin company now. They've made over a billion dollars in profit of Bitcoin, they're not making that much profit from their cars. They're now just like a Bitcoin company that also sells cars. That is the way it works right now. And that's 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 how good this has been for so many people. Back in a second. Good to be back, man. That's nice to see you, sir. And you know you enjoy being home with the baby more. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I do, yes. Yeah, he's nine and a half months, so I, I'm very happy. It. No, no. Everybody knows I like kids better than people. I so saw a picture of you with your grandson recently. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. He likes kids better than people. This is a side effect uh, of, um, of uh, I guess, becoming the Democratic presidential nominee. You just blurt out things like that. As an interesting fact, um, uh, kids are people. But the Senility Now uh, movement is in effect uh, right now. You can always get your Senility Now merchandise at stewdoesmerch.com. I think maybe senilitynow.com as well. But you can get the T-shirt. That has a nice picture of Joe Biden and pointing out that he's senile. Before we go. I want to tell you uh, that there was a uh, suspicious package found, um, and, and, and it was a little scary in Ohio. 
Um, bomb Squad came in. The Ohio Bomb Squad came in, opened uh, the suspicious package, and found the suspicious contents. Not a bomb, but adorable little kitty cats. Yes. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I, adorable might be stretching it on those particular cats. They look like rats. They're, they, a bunch of wet rats posing as cats were found in the bag. Uh, that's, that's all I got for you. I'll see you tomorrow.